been Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and in the studio today you have Jacob, um, Zane, and Felix. Felix, who is um, here just helping us out as a guest today. Welcome back. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be back. So, um, for Green Left Weekly Radio, we have a pretty packed program today. We have kind of free interviews lined up, um, mainly to try and cover a lot of the different kind of political, you know, developments that are happening across the country and for which there's quite a lot. Um, there's a lot happening in French politics, so we'll be interviewing a union activist and a regular writer for Green Left Weekly who also maintains her own blog, Revitalising Labour, to, you know, discuss and talk about the French um, elections. Um, we will also be having um, our um, one of um, the editors from Green Left Weekly, Stuart Monkton, um, to talk about, you know, to have a discussion about what is happening in Venezuela. And then finally, at the towards the end, we will have an interview with Mary Lou from Friends of Queen Victoria Markets um, to talk about the upcoming rally that's happening today and the ongoing campaign to defend the Victoria Markets from basically being redeveloped and turned to another version of Melbourne Central. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that, you know, um, that FreeCR is currently being broadcast to you in Smith Street um, in, on Aboriginal land of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation and um, sovereignty was never ceded and that it always was, always will be um, Aboriginal land. Right. So um, does anyone here have any sort of immediate news stories they would like to share? Well, there's quite a lot of news that's happened in the last week, I feel, especially internationally. Obviously, the French election, the first round was the most, probably the biggest, the biggest one. But also there's the announcement of the UK mm. election, which came out of the blue. Uh, well, just to give a recent update on that, um, right now the current situation for Labor, and um, I imagine that most FreeCR listeners will be completely behind Corbyn um, over the Tories, um, but one of the um, one of the main issues is that um, Jeremy Corbyn has actually been polling, polling quite poorly in um, the polls. Of course, the polls could be inaccurate. Um, but um, the good news is from one week in of campaigning for the general election, which was what Labor have been doing, they've been doing a very strong kind of election campaign. They've um, improved their approval ratings um over 6% or 4 to 6% and the Tories' approval ratings are just sinking by 8%. So uh, I think um, with even more intense campaign and they're going to get a, eventually close the gap, um, especially since the Tories are being quite invasive um, this general um, election with Theresa May saying that she 
won't participate in any televised debates. Mm. Um, well, well. <laughs> which is um, basically just a way of um, saying that we're not going to put our record up to any sort of scrutiny whatsoever. Yeah, yeah it's I very... Think, sorry, sorry. I think it's also a way of saying... I'm fairly confident I'm going to get my ass handed to me if I have to debate Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that a lot of it is that the majority of the British public actually, you know, basically support Jeremy Corbyn's positions. They're either that, that left or even further left. But Jeremy Corbyn, as a candidate, as a person, has been vilified to such a massive extent by the, the mainstream media and existing institutions and even by huge elements of his own party and it's it's just impossible for him to make any sort of cut through. But under a sort of slightly more equal footing of a general election, when there is some you know tradition of giving equal time and to parties and to listen to people's points of view, that's the the idea of a general election. Hmm. That the Tories do run a risk of um, of being subjected to to the alternative points of view, and so they're trying to they've, they've Theresa May has called the election at a time in which Jeremy Corbyn's at the lowest and the low, lowest point being taken down by his own party and by the mainstream media and he hasn't had a chance to, to really build his profile and also by sort of almost pulling out of, of the usual standards of an election campaign in order to, to reduce scrutiny of her own policies. Mm-hmm. Because if it does come down to policies, I think the British public would be basically for Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And so they've just got to try to remove that as much as possible. Yeah. I think um, one, the, the big kind of, um, the big sort of um, context for the election is the whole question of Brexit. Um, and so basically, you know, um, Theresa May is for a hard Brexit, a Brexit, you know, that basically gives more power to British corporations and Brit- big business in Britain. Um, whereas Corbyn is, you know, for a kind of uh, a Brexit that, you know, doesn't completely break away from the European Union um, in terms of, you know, immigration um, trading, um, but is also for, you know, a fairer and just Britain, you know, where no British person is left behind. Um, so that's that's kind of like the big, yeah, this big, there's a big debate, you know, around, you know, where to proceed, you know, in light of Brexit, um, and that's really the heart of what this kind of election's about. Um, going over to more local news, um, just to report back on, I just, um, because I am a student at Victoria University, um, we did an interview um, with this quite a, um, a few weeks ago, actually, um, about the cuts that are currently going to be happening to Victoria University in the West. Um, and these cuts are affecting um, the communications and arts courses, um, but there's a possibility that a quarter of staff could be cut. Um, so th- th- there was a public meeting organised yesterday, um, organised by the NTEU and Friends of Victoria University, um, which attracted over 100 people. And, you know, coming out of the meeting, there was, uh, you know, a motion to put forward some more action, you know, to oppose these cuts, to get the community involved, um, there's a poss- potential possibility of a rally happening in um, the Footscray area. Um, there was one talk of, you know, that they might try and attempt to blockade the Ballarat Road, which is like this very busy road um, right near the um, Footscray Park campus. Um, but what, what the reality is, what was coming, what came out of the meeting is that, the, you know, there's this real push of neoliberalisation of 
universities and there's um you know in order for victoria university to compete in the market the management basically thinks that we they should just cut out all the senior staff um replace um replace them with entry level staff you know so they have to pay them less and then open up these first year colleges which just basically replace you know it's basically so almost like a cross between TAFE and university, not quite full a TAFE, but not quite a university. Um, and, you know, as Paul Adams, um, branch president of the NTU, said to me, it's basically kind of indicating that, you know, the West, you know, the working class suburbs of the West only deserve a, a less su- than subpar university that doesn't deserve a proper university with proper university education and so that's going to be as a student myself I'm going to be fully into this campaign especially since um, it could potentially affect um, one of the courses I'm currently studying which is education Mm. Um, because education there's already been a history of Victoria University where they've been cutting out minors and cutting out majors unfortunately the majors and minors I'm choosing to study probably won't be cut um, because they're probably seen as a bit more desirable in this code, but things like drama have been cut. And I had a chat with a student at the campus that basically said he couldn't even finish his um, the drama because you in the teaching course has like you pick a major and a minor. Um, you couldn't even he couldn't even finish his um, his ma- minor in drama because they had cut the core the course content related to that in its teaching degree. I wonder how that affected his, um, you know, the units that he was enrolled in, because presumably he would have to then enrol in some other courses to do another minor. Yep. And then what he's done some drama units that don't really count towards his minor, and he ends up paying for stuff that's not really and doesn't really end up being included to part of his course. Yeah. This is such a dodgy thing. You can't change the goalpost halfway through when people have, you know, committed, you know, it's a big, it's a big sort of, um, it's a big commitment to, to sit a university course. You can't just remove people's minor halfway yeah, through. Yeah. And um, one um, very sad story, um, this was from a university um, teacher that was from VU who was speaking at this public meeting. Um, she's, um, because one of the cut, the cuts had actually happened like two weeks before the courses were due to start. And so there was a uh, young woman who showed up to the orientation week, you know, bought all her textbooks, and she was enrolled in a creative writing course. She showed up for the orientation session, and she was a bit... She thought she ended up... was in the wrong orientation session because they didn't make any mention of her course, which was creative writing. Um, But then she later found out that her course was cut... That sounds like an excellent communication strategy that they have there. Yeah, so they basically did not... Um, um, one of the, the other aspects, um, the most important parts coming out of this um, that was brought up in this meeting is um, VU have, are trying to put... The upper, upper management of VU are trying to put forward these cuts with like no consultation with the university staff and they're trying to you know do things like you know pay excessive amount of fees for you know union kind of busting lawyers... Um, and, you know, HR representatives, you know, basically spending all this money to basically cut, mm. make cuts and make them go through, um, through, um, with, um, without, you know, any real opposition from the staff involved. But of course, for, unfortunately, that the staff are getting organised, you know, um, the NTU is, you know, fully 
trying to organise a fight back campaign against this. And you know, and one of the demands is that we put a moratorium on this whole restructuring of the university, and to and and get it completely abolished, um, and have all the staff um, retained with full um, paying conditions. Mm. Yeah, and that's the other thing too is it's it is a union busting thing because when you get rid of those senior staff, those are the people who um, who have the networks within the university staff who are the ones that are able to kind of ride these things out and play the long game and and you know defend the the staff as a whole. So. That's central to union bashing, I would think, is getting rid of all the staff that are long-term and have been there for a long time and sort of continue this process of casualising all the staff and getting everyone on these short-term recurring contracts so no-one's kind of safely rooted in that university. Felix, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I totally agree with Zane. I think that it is a... it, It is... It, it's it's a quite a common thing that's happening these days of getting rid of people who are senior, who are more comfortable within the organisation and provide leadership roles because they're the people who are going to be able to, to have the authority to stand up to the neoliberal agenda and to stop these sorts of things, these cuts. Mm. And it's it's a tactic that we've seen in almost every industry. Mm. And it's a, yeah, it, it's quite effective for them, I think. And it's this is the sort of point where these sorts of things have to be resisted. Mm. All right, so I'll be playing a quick announcement and we'll get ready for our first interview for the program. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Help save the Victoria markets. Join a rally Friday, April 28th from 11.30am to 1pm. Support the stallholders and the traders to have a say in the future development of our market. Trade union and community support save the Victoria market once and we can do it again. Do your bit to make sure the market stays there as an affordable space. Hear directly from stallholders, the NUW, the Friends of the Queen Victoria Market and the Earthworker Cooperative. Hear about plans to build a cooperative and put renewable technologies into the market. Support the community who want to maintain and improve this much-loved open-air market. Friday, April the 28th from 11.30am to 1pm, 513 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. The National Union of Workers is a 3CR supporter.
Okay, um, we are on the line. Uh, we have Elizabeth um, Latham on the line, um, who she is a regular writer for Green Left Weekly, uh, a union activist, and also um, maintains a blog called Revitalizing Labour. Um, we have her on the program today because she regularly, you know, follows um, French politics, and there's been quite a lot of developments in um, French politics, especially in regards to the first round of the presidential elections passing. Um, so yeah, good morning, Elizabeth. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, good. All right. So, um, what can you give your kind of initial thoughts on the results of the elections and kind of what it means for left-wing politics in France? Uh, um, well, I think that at one level, the the results are, are an earthquake in in French politics, but on the other, they're completely expected. Like the 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 final outcome um, in terms of um, Le Pen and Macron making it through the to the to the um, the second round um, is not unexpected. The polls show that that was the most likely outcome. But in terms of the the earthquake, the the fact that it's the first time ever that the neither of the two main um, parties, in terms of the left or the right, have made it through the second round. It's quite significant. Um, and you have seen the total, um, I guess, decomposition of the Socialist Party in, 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 in this election. Um, um, at the same time, you've got the normalisation of the, of the, of, um, the National Front to a much greater extent than in the past. Um, uh, in terms of what it means for, for, for left politics, I guess um, because Mélenchon, who was the uh, I guess the main left uh, candidate to the left of the, the Socialist Party, his poll results were just under 20% of the uh, of uh, those who participated in the elections. Um, it's the biggest poll by a party to the left, a candidate to the left of, the, of, of social democracy since '69, when the Communist Party's candidate got about 22%, which is quite. It's very significant and very important, but I guess we have to we have to um, ground that with the, the reality that um, the Le Pen got uh, 21% of the vote, which is really really significant in terms of the, the extent to which the right wing racist politics is acceptable in France at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, interesting enough, um, one of the things um, that I've regularly heard um, from the left on you know this whole election is. Um, there's a very high possibility that Macron is going to win, um, but the left hat, there's this kind of fear that, you know, basically, because the victory of Ma Macron would basically mean uh, a deepening of more neoliberal economic policies, which would then in turn deepen support for the kind of national front. Um, and so there's a, it's scary, there's this sort of quote that's going around, oh yes, um, the scariest thing um, that we're worried about is that Le Pen is going to become the next president following the election right after this because um, because Macron is just another establishment candidate who's going to put forward more neoliberal economic policies? Yeah, well, I think... I mean, after This isn't the first time that the National Party made it through the, to the second round. In 2002, um, Marine Le Pen's father, John-Marie Le Pen, made it through to the, to the second round in a, in a surprise because um, the... Uh, the uh, the Socialist Party's candidate, uh, Joss Ben, was unable to um, secure sufficient votes to make it through. But there is, the, uh, um, but that, both that uh, that experience of uh, people uniting behind Chirac to make sure that Le Pen didn't make it through, to the, didn't win, um, 
and this experience does definitely pose the possibility that um, of consolidation of the of, of um, Le, Pen, uh, Le Pen's position in terms of if there's further neoliberal attacks, um, the anger and frustration that has um, helped to galvanise support for Le Pen will continue, uh, particularly if the left is seen as being um, uh, supporting those uh, the, uh, the, the basis for those attacks by supporting Macron. So coming out of the, the first round, um, Melanchon um, has made it clear that he's made a clear statement that there should be no votes for Le Pen, Le Pen but it's unclear, unclear at this point what position he and his movement, uh, France and Sumni, the France unsubdued, will um, will take regarding a vote for Macron. So they're having a consultation at the moment to to work out what their position will be, whether it will be a call for an abstention from the second, from the second round, a call for people to spoil their ballots in the second round, um, uh, or a call for people to, to vote for uh, Macron. Um, all three positions, uh, they're saying, are, are moral positions that um, would be um, acceptable. They're just working out what they would do. The MPA, which is the new anti-capitalist party, that, um, who also stood a candidate who got 1.3% of, uh, of the vote, um, Philip Poutou, who's a, um, a Ford um, a mechanic at a Ford plant, um, he, uh, they've taken a position of making it very clear that they won't call for a vote for Macron. Um, their, their view is a call for Macron would, by the left, would indeed um, position the left as of um, endorsing what would come under Macron, and would forget that that the the attacks that um, both the, the the right and the and the and, the, and social democracy have brought on to uh, the, uh, work, the French working class and other um, marginalised sections of the French community is exactly what's um, laid the basis for for Le Pen, and they're calling for people to. For the struggle to be in the streets, both against Le Pen and against Macron. Yeah, um, just one other something I've observed um, about Macron is, um, you know, um, I'd like to hear kind of like your kind of some comments on the history of Macron because basically Macron, you know, from my understanding, served under Francis Hollande, and you know, basically implemented a lot of the sort of very regressive kind of labour laws. In France, but one of the most interesting things I think about Macron's present election is he sort of has this smooth way of presenting himself as neither left or right, um, but you know also against. He also almost puts forward this kind of centrist, kind of anti-establishment kind of sort of thing where he's not like the traditional parties, therefore he will be different. And is that part of the reason why he's um, received so much broad support in terms of his presidency? Or is it mainly due to, you know, the fact that, you know, he's basically putting forward everything that the establishment wants and the establishment has gone behind him in that sense? Um, well, I guess it depends on what you call it, the establishment. So Macron's a banker. He comes from a banking um, um, uh, uh, background. He works for one of the Rothschild's um, banks, but he's moved quite freely between the banking world and the world of the senior ranks of, um, of politics. So... I was a member of the um, Socialist Party for a period of time. Um, 2002, he was the Deputy General Secretary inside the um, um, Aliso Palace, which is the, the Presidential Palace. So he had a senior role within the uh, under yeah, Hollande's presidency. In 2014, he uh, took up a ministership in the second Bowles um, government. So the way in which the French government's worked out is you have the presidency, and then you have the government, which is formed out of the par- parliamentary. 
uh, ranks as a dominant um, parliamentary group, um, but um, you don't hold a, you don't have to be a member of parliament to be um, to be a minister. And indeed, if you are a member of parliament, you essentially give up your seat to your second while you're a minister. Um, and so he had a, he had a uh, uh, ministry for the weird ministry um, for economics and I think from um, for, uh, partly for IT. It was a re- weird ministry, and he did drive through some deregulation of the labour market. Um, in, um, Particularly around um, making it easier for people to work for workers to be sacked um, was part of the Macron laws that were um, driven through under him. He was also a supporter of the El Comri laws, which were passed last year, which were the essentially um, uh, deregulation of the broader labour market um, through an undermining of what any, what's in France is referred to um, as the as the labour code. Um, I guess in Australia, the equivalent of a combination of the award system and the um, and the national employment standards. Um, it's, not, it's not a great um, translation because it's a very different um, uh, labour labour system. So that's his background, and he's moved quite um, freely between them. Um, he, he does present himself, as, I guess, as um, as above politics in some ways. Um, so his his party on on march on on the move. Um, that he formed last year. Um, they're looking to run candidates in the in the legislative elections, which I'll need to do in order for him to actually do much as as, as the president. Um, which they're promising that half of them will have previously held political offices, and other of them will have had life in in um, in um, in uh, have been part of civil society in whatever way that takes. It's, un- it's a bit unclear about exactly what their backgrounds will be. Um, <laughs> Perhaps banking. <laughs> Well, but banking partly, but I think other other aspects as well. I'm, France's social life is very large, um, you know, and people move between things really um, weirdly. So, um, hmm. so under under um, Sarkozy, you had a person take up ministry who founded a fairly regressive position in a ministry who founded Medicine Sans Frontiers. So, people can move between things quite quite freely. It's a it's a very dynamic. Um, uh, civil society much more so than than, than, than Australia. Um, I think, in terms of the, le- the extent to which um, uh, Macron represents things, like the, the, there's some stats that have come out in terms of uh, uh, incomes of, of support bases. He got the biggest share of people of the of the richest sections of French society. He got about 30 percent of the, of the richest uh, income bracket um, compared to Le Pen getting 12 percent of that of that of that. Of that bracket, and in terms of the growth of his position of the of the party, it was really a consequence of the decomposition of the right wing of the of the socialist party, and the decomposition to an extent of the of the, of the centre right um, parties. Um, and so, and part of the reason why he, he he was able to gain ground was that when the the socialist party held an open nomination process for who would they be their presidential candidate, they tried to rope in pretty much the entirety of the left into that process. So the Communist Party was invited to be part of the the, the, the pre-selection process. Mélenchon was invited. They all could just stand, and it was the idea where you have one candidate, and everyone would come behind that one candidate. So it was an attempt for them to try and save themselves, literally, by roping in the rest of the left into their campaign. Um, didn't really work. Mélenchon said no. The Communist Party said no. Um, Hollande, who was the sitting president, said in December, I'm not going to be part of it, mainly because of the fact that he had 4% approval rating and people went, you've got no chance. Um, but Mac- Macron also said he wouldn't be part of it. When Hamon, who was the PS's final candidate, defeated um, the sitting Prime Minister, um, um, Emmanuel Rawls, for the 
for the to be the candidate, the right wing, and he put forward a left, you know, a, a, a more left social democratic platform for the PS in the presidential elections. Um, when he won, the right wing of the Socialist Party essentially went, "We're not supporting you." So Emmanuel Valls, he had the sitting prime minister say, "I have called for a vote for Macron." The sitting president of the Socialist Party called for a vote for Macron. Um, and so the right wing of the PS just essentially jumped ship and went to um, went to um, Macron, and a chunk of the, of the left jumped ship and went to Mélenchon because Mélenchon was seen as being more, more having had a, having a better chance. And you saw for the process of elections, the poll scores from Macron being ten percent, us about five to six percent above Mélenchon, just them starting to converge. And it's at the point that they converge. Melanchon shot up and Macron just collapsed. And so his final vote was around 6%, which is like a tiny, tiny vote for um, an institutional party to get in the presidential elections. Mm. Mm. Yeah, just uh, probably we're getting, um, running a bit on time here, but the kind of last question I sort of want to um, put, uh, ask is just a, a bit of a comment on the nature of Le Pen's kind of sort of anti-establishment kind of rhetoric, because one of the most interesting things that she did after the first round of um, the prep elections is she stepped down as a national front leader, um, whatever that means in the president of the national front. Yeah. 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 And um, and then she and then and then basically I've, there's this sort of tendency where I've noticed that within some of her statements she's trying to position herself as like the anti-establishment kind of candidate, um, like the one that's the voice for the people, you know. And you know what? What kind of your comments on you know the char- that kind of character of the far right in France? Well, uh, yeah. So I think that definitely the the National Front has att- under under Le Pen, the National Front has attempted to what's referred to as detoxify themselves, so they try and paint themselves as being more acceptable to the bulk of the French society because they've been generally seen under her father as this thoroughly reactionary um, um, tradition, thoroughly anti-Semitic. Um, um, Holocaust-denying bunch of racists. Um, and so the idea, you could be right-wing and racist, but you wouldn't vote for them because that's just a, a, a step, to, a bridge too far um, because you'd be basically a be, be a social pariah in my circles. She's done a lot of work to try and make them look better. Um, um, and um, partly that was to exclude um, but a layer of older activists who are seen as just being too... Um, too, just too far gone, which included her father. Um, um, and and I mean, not that they weren't racist, they didn't say racist things, but it was more um, targeting sections of the community, which everyone else in, in, in mainstream French society, um, in terms of um, the major political parties, got, uh, have been going for as well, particularly the Muslim community, um, the Roma community, um, refugees and undocumented workers. They're all pretty much free, um, um, free, um, free game. And, and painting themselves as the real defenders of French society. Um, to some extent, that's been helped by the fact that, under, particularly under Hollande, the Communist Party has not necessarily had a clear um, thing of opposing some of the worst aspects of the of the um, of attacks from the Socialist Party. They wouldn't vote for it, but they wouldn't necessarily vote against it, which did allow. Um, uh, has allowed the National Front and Marina Le Pen to paint themselves as the only people who stand up against these attacks. You can't trust the centre-right because they attack you. You can't trust the Socialist Party because they'll say they'll protect you and then they come in and they attack you as well. You can't trust the Communists because 
but they're they're the slackies of the of, of the of the socialist party. Um, and so they they've constructed this idea that they're the real defenders, and it never really gets tested because in general they've been in opposition. And at the local level, there are um, municipalities um, where they've had control at a local level, and they're not fun. They're really like they're an awful, awful organisation, and they're full of react, chock full of reactionaries. So um, uh, I think there'd be lots of people who've had exper- um, experience with them who would run a mile on them, but lots of the people who'd be voting for them are not the main people who they're, they're, they're targeting. So you've had a situation where um, there's been a growth of the LG- in a growing section of the LGBTI community in France who are openly in, in favour of voting for Le Pen because. She's been very successful as painting um, the Muslim community in France as being the real threat, a real existential threat to um, the uh, LGBT community in in France, and that she because she's the real defender against them, that she's the real defender of that community. Similarly, amongst the Jewish community, um, um, there's been a, it, it's much more acceptable. There's been um, articles in a number of Israeli newspapers about Jewish people in France voting for Le Pen. Um, lots of levels. This is thoroughly anti-Semitic party. Just yep. said anti-Semitic things during the campaign, um, but um, that people see that see that this is an acceptable thing. And there's contradictions there um, as well. That's not just about what she's doing. It's about um, the the dynamics in those communities um, in terms of conservatization and support for the right within sections of those communities. But a big part of it is the uh, the positioning that 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 they've done. Um, some of which is, has some connection to reality, a lot of which is just complete um, distortion of reality. Hmm. Hey, anyway, thanks um, for um, that, Lisbeth. Um, it's very um, welcome, you know, having your commentary on um, French politics. And, um, yeah, thanks for being on our show. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. No problem. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, so we just had um, Lisbeth um, Laysom on the line. He's a union activist um, to talk about, you know, what's happening in French politics. Um, we'll just get a quickly play announcement and we'll move on to have some news from the latest Green Left Weekly. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Hey, you are. Um, we're back on Green Left Weekly Radio on 855 AM. Um, we have some 10 minutes of to fill up with um, some news from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, the first article I kind of want to talk about is um, this is an article um, written, you know, about by test polling. Um, it's about, um, you know, a gra- um, about you know drug legislation and this new report that um, was released on the future of drug policy in Australia. 
Um, the report is titled, Can Australia Respond to Drugs More Effectively and Safely? Openly acknowledged, which, you know, openly acknowledged the failure of um, Australia's punitive drug policies and called for a steady path towards decriminalisation. Um, launched by former Liberal Premier of Victoria, Jeff Kennett, and former Premier of New South Wales, Bob Carr, the report was produced by independent think tank Australia 21. It was based on, a, on views expressed at a roundtable headed by former Australia Federal Police Commissioner, Mike Hart. Other participants included former Assistant Commissioners, former Heads of Corrective Services, and a former Directive of Proper of proper public persecutions or professionals responsible for the implementation of our current drug policies. Um, basically, this report concluded that Australia's current system is badly broken, ineffective and even counterproductive to harm minimisation aims of um, Australia's national elected drugs policy. Um, you know, the statistics um, on Australia's current measures for curtailing uh, elect, um tr- Drug trafficking and use are sobering, according to Australian Bureau of Statistics. In 2016, um, drug offences were the most common offence nationally, with um, 8,160 offenders recorded. The number of offenders has risen 48% since 2008. Of these offenders, 67% were charged for possession and of use of illicit drugs, and young people aged um, 20 to 24 had the highest offender rate of any age group. You know, and you know, the article goes and states, you know, the Australian, um, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare compiled statistics on methamphetamine use in Australia over the past years. It starkly concluded that you know, usage is highest amongst individuals in the most vulnerable and persecuted sectors of society. You know, unemployed people are 20.2.7 times more likely to use meth than the general population, and those with very high levels of um, psychological distress are more than six times as likely. And then makes this um, test then makes this point. You know, the government spends billions of dollars on drug law enforcement each year. This report, you know, concludes that illicit drug use should be seen as a community health problem, and government spending should be diverted from punitive measures to funding health and social infrastructure um, projects. And of course, then uh, makes the point that you know, Australian leaders cannot ignore these important, you know, considered arguments for a pathway towards decriminalisation. Globally, the evidence um, against probation and punitive drug policy you know, has been mounting for decades, especially when um, you compare it to the US situation, which has been the world leader in implementing harsh disciplinary drug policies. You know, the Nixon government, um, written here in the article, um, stated, you know, that intru- states here that you know, they introduced a series of reforms then labelled the war on drugs in 1971, these reforms implemented the, you know, the strict control and prohibition of illicit drugs from manufacture to personal use of banned substance. And of course, you know, this this is like basically um, there's lots of things that you know that can be said. Um, it goes in um, this article goes into you know how you know the different sort of racial elements to um, the implementation of these harsh drug policies. And but then talks um, about an alternative. You know, you know, in in stark contrast. Portugal is leading the world by example with its drug policies. In 2000, for example, Portugal implemented sweeping reforms decriminalising drug possession and funding and directing users in possession of hard drugs such as heroin and cocaine to treatment programs as opposed to charging them with criminal offences. And of course, um, and dr- 
Poch, as, as a result of this, Portugal's drug-related mortality rate was free per million citizens in 2016, as opposed to 10 point a million in the Netherlands and 4.44.6 per million in um, Britain. Both nations, both nations with punitive drug policies similar to Australia. Treatment programs and funding for Portugal's universal health care system have improved public key public health markers, including HIV infection rates, which have fallen by more than 90%. Uh, just to jump into, I think it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but in places where they've uh, decriminalised or legalised drugs, use of those substances tends to go down, not up. Mm. Um, I was reading somewhere that that's been the case in Colorado. The number of young people, as you've said before, young people are the sort of main demographic that are using drugs, often as an escape um, from from a harsh kind of um, lived experience of the world. And, uh, yeah, in, in Colorado, since they've legalised marijuana, actually the number of young people using it's gone down. Mm. Yeah, I think that's um, one, I think one of the aspects of that, you know, just my initiative kind of aspect, it's, I remember like when you go back in history, there was this whole probation of alcohol, and that basically meant that, you know, it opened up this kind of black market for, you know, people to, you know, basically profit, you know, more shady types of people to profit off, um, you know, the selling of alcohol. And it's kind of the same kind of similar situation with, you know, drugs. Um, and, yeah, and just to conclude with this article, um, Tess, you know, concludes here that, you know, decriminalising illicit drug use in Australia, you know, making these arguments from, you know, the examples in Portugal, you know, talking about this report that's just recently released, you know, it's the pathway to a better society, you know, acknowledging and addressing underlying causes of drug abuse, such as poverty and racism, will lead to better health and economic outcomes for all Australians. You know, experts have concluded that it is time it is time to end the failed war of drugs and voices from both the right and left of the political spectrum you know are beginning to reach a consensus on the issue mm. yeah i think that um a lot of the the prohibition of illicit drugs is really about a completely different issue which is the a, a very ready way to um control a lot of the population poor people because um if you make if you if you uh, force people into incarceration and criminalise people's behaviour, you force a, a level of hopelessness onto their lives, which mm-hmm. can just continue the cycle of drug abuse. And uh, then uh, huge sections of the population can be basically summarily uh, picked up by the, the cops and controlled in a very effective way. Like in America, the war on drugs, like a, it's, it's not a, a massive stretch to to see that the Nixon administration was really after um, sort of appeasing the the white voters, his base, to show that they had a a mechanism for um, suppressing black people. And it is quite effective, I think, at uh, being able to to put all of these charges and to use the police, police force and the police state in order to target very effectively a whole segment of the community and there's a lot of that that occurs in Australia as well, not to the same sort of racial dimension as in America. Mm. But I don't think it's about it at, at all uh, about helping people get off drugs or anything like that. I think that that's 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 you know the evidence doesn't show it, and the the motivations for people behind pushing for greater um, criminalisation of of drug use it's just not you know you, you can see that that's not their motivation. Mm.
Well, it's um, one more. There's uh, some interesting political analysis, um, especially on the war on drugs. Um, but when it comes to like the criminalization of, you know, in you know America, there's such a heavy criminalization of something like, say, marijuana, which is not a hard drug. Um, but you know, some of the political analysis from the left has sort of tried to argue that um, it was basically kind of a way. Um, because you know a lot of the radical countercultural movements at the time were all into kind of you know marijuana, you know smoking weed. You know apparently it makes you a free sinker or something. But this <laughs> is the, I don't know if I believe that. Um, but it was part of a way of um, of you know attacking these radical movements as a way of you know criminalising some of the some of the individuals who were involved in left wing um, politics. Um, so that's kind of like some of the analysis that's come from the left on, you know, yeah, where some of these policies come from. That definitely does make a lot of sense. You can imagine the Nixon administration in particular, the base of support being white middle-class people who are fearful of both, um, you know, the, the black population and also the, the countercultural, mm. um, the, the scary countercultural transformation of society. Yeah, that, that whole big peace and love movement that was happening in parallel with... Um with the, the civil rights movement, yeah. yeah, and the and the Paris Spring and the yeah. Prague Spring, and yep, and so yeah, it's a very, you know, very effective way for them to say, okay, then well, let's let's go down hard on these these bad substances, and then we can control whole segments of the population that we we don't like, and then they turn a blind eye, of course, to any sort of middle class drug use, you know, it's that, that's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's in the, in the America, in the United States, there's a there's a good um, television show called The Wire, and you know one of the creators of David um, David Simon, you know, basically says you know the war on drugs is basically a war on the underclass. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's it's not, it's not it's not about you know a way it's basically a war on the underclass. And one of the other interesting things you notice in America is a lot of these these harsh policing also goes hand in hand with you know gentrification of you know of suburbs in in america like you know basically pushing out you know african americans out of their public housing estates and pushing them into ghettos where you know where um and they're forced and there's like no jobs and you know their their economic conditions are such that they have no choice but to resort to selling drugs because that's the only you know form of employment that they can find in these environments that are being ghettoized yeah, and to find an escape from a hopeless existence that's been fostered on, on top of them. Yeah, I think just the hypocrisy of it too. The US likes to talk about freedom this and freedom that and wank on and wave their stupid flag around. But uh, the US is the number one country, both in outright numbers and as a proportion of the population, that jails its own citizens. Mm. And there's, um, as Felix mentioned, there's a really racial dimension to that too, Huge numbers of black and Hispanic people are in jails for these relatively minor offences. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll just play a quick announcement and we'll move on to our second interview for the program. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples. 
those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. Okay, so on the line we have Stuart Monckton. Um, Stuart Monckton is an editor for Green Left Weekly, um, you know, Know, maintains a lot of the coverage of um, regularly follows politics, obviously, because he's an editor of Greenleaf Weekly, and he's also known as for being a comedian, um, known as Carlos Sands. But we're not really going to be talking about that. We're going to be having a discussion with him about Venezuela. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Just wanted to um, start by you know asking, you know, what is the kind of political situation in Venezuela now with these sort of opposition kind of protests, and you know, what is n the nature of the opposition and what the media, based, the mainstream media basically isn't telling us about them? Uh, well, the situ situation is um, one of uh, that Venezuela is facing a sustained uh, attack, really, on its, on its democracy uh, that is being spearheaded inside the country by the opposition, uh, which, uh, if you follow the mainstream media, you, you would get the impression that you're seeing a mass and democratic peaceful protest movement that's facing government repression uh, but uh, on the ground the, the, the reality when you unpack it is actually very 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 different uh, you have it's not just a question of uh, the institutional legitimacy of the Nicolas Maduro government uh, an elected government uh, ahead of a, a, a political movement that's, that's won the overwhelming majority of, of, uh, in more than 20 elections and in, in, in the past 20 years. Uh, it's not simply a question of, of that, but that the opposition forces, despite winning control of parliament in December 2015, has been unable, uh, even in the face of quite serious economic problems, to build up any significant Political support beyond its beyond its base, uh, and to to actually force the government out, which is a stated goal when it won the elections in December of 2015 for, for parliament, which is only one of the five uh, branches of the Venezuelan Venezuelan state. Um, when when they won that, they immediately stated their goal was to to remove Maduro, even though they don't have the the uh, either the institutional or political mandate to do anything of, of that sort rather than, seek to con rather than seek to put up measures that would help resolve Venezuela's economic crisis. They, they went down that, that path. And when they found that that path increasingly uh, blocked, the response has been, particularly uh, now since early April, has been uh, essentially an extremely violent response uh, involving a campaign of of very violent street street actions, uh, resulting in now I think we're looking at uh, at least 30, 30 deaths. Which again, if you read the media, the, the impression you get is that this is a result of government repression. Uh, and yet, actually, while 
the, the single largest group responsible for the deaths have, have been uh, uh, the violent, have, have actually been the violent, violent protests. Uh, we're talking uh, organising riots, uh, attacking public institutions. Most infamously, they, they attacked a maternity hospital and forced uh, the mothers and the small, you know, like a whole lot of uh, newborn babies uh, to, to evacuate. We're talking the destruction of uh, health clinics, public institutions, uh, of barricades set, uh, on fire, set, set up on, on fire. And these are generally out, well and truly outside of the, the poor areas where the opposition has very little very little support. Uh, and that this, this campaign uh, of destruction and violence which then gets represented in the media as peaceful protests being repressed is being matched by an external attack on, on, on Venezuela, uh, really spearheaded by the United States, but taking the form of the Organization of American States, which has long been, uh, long, really long been um, an instrument of US foreign policy in, in Latin America, uh, has begun to has now passed a vote to begin an investigation into Venezuela to open up the path to invoke its democratic charter, which would see Venezuela uh, expelled from the organisation. Uh, a similar measure was taken in 1962 to expel Cuba uh, from, from the organise from the organisation. Uh, in response to this, Venezuela has announced it will begin withdrawing from the OAS. Uh, it's, it's not going to sit sit around and wait to wait to be expelled. It's going to is beginning to beginning to plan to, to withdraw, uh, and on top of that, you have U.S. sanctions, and you have the uh, comments from U.S. officials, uh, including the head of the U.S. Southern Command, which is the U.S. section of the U.S. military responsible for Latin America, uh, that basically, you know, threaten intervention. And it's inside Venezuela, it's very important to get a sense of how unpopular the opposition's actions and the OAS and the US interventions actions actually are. While it's, it's both the opposition and the government uh, suffer relatively low low support in Venezuela, and there's a you know, growing number of people who don't necessarily identify with either. Uh, a recent polling by an independent polling firm, one of a very well-respected independent polling firm in Venezuela, found uh, it was something like, it was about um, nine out of ten people reject these opposition protests, like the, 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 the use of, um, they call them the, the garimbas, basically violent street protests you know, involving burning barricades and, 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 and rioting, um, which caused incredible disruption to people's lives. We've had at least one death from someone who couldn't actually get to a hospital, but generally people can't move around. Uh, and there's also accounts of, of um, you know, people who are chavistas or, you know, just poor being uh, violently attacked, yes, bystanders has been violently attacked. Um, nine out of ten people reject this. There's something like about 83%, like it's, it's over 80% uh, don't trust the OAS and don't like the OAS, and similar numbers explicitly reject any international uh, inter intervention into, uh, into, into Venezuela, and they're, they're quite decisive, quite decisive examples of, of, um, However frustrated people might be with the situation, whatever their exact attitude is to the Maduro government, they completely reject what's happening. And yet we see in the international media the opposite being presented, uh, that there is a, you know, popular mass movement against an unpopular, an unpopular, an unpopular government. But it actually, the reality is quite clear that it actually it's the actions of the opposition 
uh, even though you know that, that are actually being being rejected. Um, Stuart, I was just interested in the sort of um, it's been described as a constitutional crisis, or that the the, oh. uh, the National Assembly. So my understanding is that was it December 2015? You were saying the National Assembly elections were uh, December 19, uh, December 2015. The, the opposition won a majority uh, in in the assembly. Yes. So my understanding is that the um, the opposition, the right wing, won 109 out of about 160 odd seats, and the PSUV, the Socialists, won 55 seats, and then the um, the Court of Returns or whatever the the Supreme Court has ruled three of those 109 candidates for the right wing were invalid because of vote buying and dodgy practice. However, the right-wing opposition refused to accept that ruling and has tried to swear in these three people who, well, they've, they who they've said are not valid. So the Supreme Court's response is, well, the whole parliament is not valid until you accept our ruling that those people yeah. were not legitimately elected. Yeah, yeah, yes, I mean, that's more, more or less. I mean, it's got to be clear that it wasn't just... Basically, there were... What's at stake is the supermajority. That is, the, the opposition won a majority, but if they can win, two, if they hold two-thirds of the seats, mm. it, it grants them many more, many more powers, basically, that they can, you know, they, they, can, they can do a whole lot more, whole lot more things. Um, so it's not just three, it's actually, uh, what happened was in December, that, that the same, same month, in the immediate aftermath of the elections, the Supreme Court all so it's not even a question that these, these deputies have been necessarily found guilty. So they ordered an investigation, not just of of four deputies, not even three, of four. Two were of the opposition. One was uh, elected on an Indigenous list that aside to the opposition, and the other was PSUV. Um, it's the three that those three that vote with the opposition are the decisive ones because uh, if if they are sworn in. And they are accepted in the opposition as the majority. However, what the opposition at first did in, in, in January was then to swear them in anyway. Um, whereas the, the Supreme Court would say that we have, will have an investigation into these allegations of electoral fraud and vote, and vote buying. Uh, you know, and you cannot swear them in until the outcome of that investigation. Um, and so then the Supreme Court declared that the, the National Assembly was in, in contempt of court, which which it was. Um, and initially they backed out. Uh, however, in July they then swore them in again. Uh, so you can see it's, it's, the, the move, particularly in July, I mean, it, it's quite clear that the opposition is trying to manufacture uh, a lot of this constitutional, constitutional crisis. Mm. Uh, and then the latest violence erupted after... Um, after a whole period of this this sort of unclear situation, uh, the government asked the Supreme Court uh, whether or not, uh, basically, how it can, how it can proceed. I mean, does it have to? It's got to put a budget in. So does it actually have to submit its budget to the National Assembly when the National Assembly has been declared uh, in contempt of court? Uh, and the Supreme Court made a ruling. That uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have to. 
Uh, now, this caused an uproar, and you know, the media describes it as a Majora's coup and, and all the rest of it. And totally, for the media, there is no separation of powers in Venezuela, and yet what happened next totally defies that, because within a day or two, the Attorney General then ruled that the Supreme Court was, in, was actually violating the Constitution. Uh, the Attorney General is appointed by, has also been appointed by the government, is, is you know, associated with the political movement of, 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 of the government. Uh, you know, if this is a dictatorship that controls all branches of the government, why have you got the Supreme Court ruling one way and the Attorney General ruling, ruling the other? Is that both, if it's all just agencies of, of Maduro's communist dictatorship, it doesn't actually make any sense. Uh, now the thing is, this, this ruling, you know, last of a day or so before it was, before it was, um, before they just, uh, on, the, on the advice of the Attorney General, they overturned the Supreme Court, reversed the decision. Uh, and yet that's what sparked this violence. Now if, what sparked the violence was that move by the Supreme Court, it would, would have lasted a day. And yet it's still going. It's been going since April 4, and it's getting, and there's no sign that it's going, there's no, there's no sign it's going to end. What's more, the immediate demands are basically for, uh, yeah, to, to, to bring down the Juro, to bring on, to bring on elections, which are scheduled for, for, for next, uh, scheduled for, for next year. They don't actually directly re result. And I think the, the most revealing thing about this and the opposition's maneuvers and their obsession with this whole thing is, at no point have they actually developed any policies to resolve the economic crisis. And this explains why, despite the fact that there's a serious crisis in the country, the opposition hasn't been able to extend its support. Uh, mm. Because rather than try and solve any of those problems, they have just tried to, to uh, bring down, bring down the, the government. Mm. Which, particularly when you consider who these people are, uh, essentially the people leading this movement are the same people who led the 2002 military coup that overthrew Chavez and kidnapped him um, and, until basically a rebellion of loyal soldiers and, and the poor returned into office. I mean, it was literally the same, the same, the same faces and they, they show really in the parliament they're obsessed with freeing what they call political prisoners who are largely in jail for violence, similar campaigns of violence that happened in 2014. They do things like yeah, they want to bring yep. down impeachment bureau. Um, you know, they take down photos of Chavez. That was one of the things the assembly, one of the assembly's votes to um, remove the photos of Chavez. Stuart, um, we're running very low on time now. We're going a bit over time. We actually need to move on to another um, part of the program. Um, don't even have any time for any final comments. But thanks um, for your time on the program. And um, we might follow up with you to you know talk more about you know because it seems like there is actually a lot happening in Venezuela, and we could probably almost spend all day talking about it. Yeah, thank you very much, Stuart. No worries, sir. Thank you. Yep. Stuart Monkson there, the uh, international editor for Green Left Weekly, yep. talking about uh, what's going on in Venezuela. Yep. So um, right now we are going, getting ready for the activist calendar. Um, we just might play a quick announcement just to give a bit of a breather for it, and then we'll go back to the activist calendar. Yarra Council is seeking feedback from the Yarra community on the following draft documents. Council plan, annual budget, long-term financial strategy and our proposed waste service charge. All submissions must be received by 5pm on Thursday the 4th of May. To learn more about the draft documents and how to make a submission, visit yoursayyarra.com.au or contact us at info at yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205-5555. Yarra Council is a 3CR supporter.
Right, we're back um, on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it's time for the activist calendar before our final interview. We don't really have much time. We only have five minutes before we have to move on to the next interview. So um, just um, to give you a nuts uh, taste of what's happening, um, there's going to be in probably like an hour, well, at 10.30 a.m. today, there'll be a Workers' Memorial Day, Remember the Dead, Fight for the Living, um, and that will be outside Trades Hall on Ligon Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be a rally to save the Victorian market, which is something we're going to be talking about quite shortly in greater detail with our interview. Um, that will be happening at 11.30 a.m. Um, at the corner of Queen and Ferry Street, or follow the crowd, and um, that's to save the Victoria market from redevelopment. Um, Tuesday, on May the 2nd, there'll be a rally, community health and education workers say, bring the refugees here. Um, that will be that will be like a continuation of the Teachers for Refugees campaign that is um, that started last year, um, but it include greater, um, more unions, health and community workers, and the National Territory of Education Union. Um, if I could just jump into the the sort of official Vic Trades Hall May Day rally is next Sunday the seventh. Uh, however, I think um, Asia Australia Worker Links uh, organising an actual May Day protest on. Um, Monday, the 1st of May, International Workers' Day. Uh, it's at 5.30 at the State Library. Um, and then there is there is a Human Rights and uh, Arts and Film Festival happening. Search H-R-A-F-F in Google and you can find the full program there. It goes from the 4th of May to the 18th. Um, on Thursday, the May the 4th, um, there will be a public meeting, the Great Wage Rip-Off, um, you know, basically about, you know, how bosses have been attempting to undercut the pay of young workers and, you know, the push by employer groups to cut penalty rates. Um, so, you know, basically there will be discussion on how we can end the Great Wage Rip-Off and that's happening at 6pm, um, meeting room 1 in the Shrades Hall and it's hosted by the Young Workers Centre. Um, also happening on that same time, um, there'll be a May Day multicultural event at 6pm at the Bella Union, um, and then there'll be a public meeting um, revitalising the union movement, What Needs to Happen, featuring Jess Collin, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, Lucy Honand, State Council of the AEU, Cindy O'Connor, Benjamin Smith, and that will be happening at 7pm at the Bella Una corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets. And it's organised by the new International Bookshop. And on Saturday, May 6th, um, this is a very similar issue to um, the Victoria Markets. And we'll probably get in touch with an interview um, to find out more about what's happening. There'll be a rally to save our Preston Market, um, encouraging friends and family to unite to preserve our beloved asset, the Preston Market. And that's at 11am. There'll be, on Sunday, there'll be, um, Social Alliance will be hosting a May Day toast, Boy Laws Need to Be Broken, at 10am at the Resistance Centre, and then following that, there'll be a May Day march at 1pm at the Shrades Hall. Word, and it's the uh, Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation Health and Environmental Conference today. I, uh, I did write down somewhere where it's happening, but I can't remember. But yeah, if you're interested in that, or if you're an A&MF member, check out the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation uh, website. There will be, um, on the Tuesday, the May the 9th, um, this will be part of a big sort of day, week of action for the Stop Adani campaign, um, but there'll be a protest at, outside the West Bank, 
Pack Bank at the corner of Collins and Swanson Street in the city um, on, on demanding that you know Westpac don't fund the Adani coal mine from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Um, also happening on that night will be a public meeting fighting the right in the age of Trump featuring Nancy Reiko Kato, a Japanese-American public sector unionist and anti-fascist activist, and that will be happening um, at the 6.30pm in the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South, and it's organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, there'll be uh, a rally to and defend and extend public housing at 12 noon at the Parliament Steps of Spring Street in the city on and then there'll be a community meeting, um, no development of toxic site in Faulkner at 7pm at Senior Citizen Centre, 77 Dukes Road in Faulkner. And it's initiated by Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. And mm, then the that's la- on Thursday, May 11. Yep. <laughs> and the last announcement, um, the last two announcements that I'll do before moving on to our interview, there'll be a protest um, in the week of action in Moreland. Moreland says no to Nogani, and that'll be outside the Coburg West Branch from... Um, 12, I think it's from 12.30pm at the 482 Sydney Road. And that's and on Friday the 12th of May. Yep, and it's initiated by Climate Action Moreland. And there'll be a red cinema, Do Not Resist, a film screening of a, a account of the increasing use of military weapons and tactics by local law enforcement in the United States. And um, that will be um, happening at the Resistance Centre Friday the May 12th at um, 6.30pm with a meal from 6pm and that's at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street and it's hosted by Green Left Weekly. Okay, we'll just go play a quick announcement and then move on to our last interview for the program. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Okay, we have Mary Lou, um, who's from Friends of Queen Victoria Market. Um, so we have her on the program today to talk about um, this kind of proposed redevelopment of um, the um, Queen Victoria markets in Melbourne and um, what the plan and what the campaign is planning to um, do to oppose it. Good morning, Mary. Mary Lou. Oh, yeah, Mary Lou, sorry. That. Um, so just um, we've just to, for the background of the program, what is the, what are the proposed, what is this proposed redevelopment of Victoria markets that Lord Mayor Doyle is trying to do? Well, we see the proposed redevelopment as a complete repurposement, a repurpose of the market um, to repurpose it into a gourmet food precinct, an entertainment precinct. This is a working market. It was given to the people of Victoria by our forefathers for the purpose of a market, sole purpose of a market only. It is not an entertainment space. It's a working, gritty market which offers fresh food at affordable prices to them to all demographics in Melbourne. 
Mm-hmm. So what they're proposing to do is to pull down sheds, heritage sheds, A, B, C and D, excavate two floors under, put in services underground, possibly parking, nobody's quite sure, the plans keep changing, and refrigeration, which then converts the market from a fresh food market to a supermarket. Mm. Um, at the moment, the fresh food turnaround at the market is three days. In a supermarket, it's six weeks. That's why the market is so popular, because we can rely on it being fresh food. The other thing they're proposing to do is to convert the existing car parking space into an entertainment space. Now, the car parking, where they're going to put the car parking hasn't been resolved yet, but we lose all the on-street parking. And for people who are serious about shopping at the market, parking affordable, accessible parking is essential to to the viability of the market. Then, of course, there's the Munro site, which isn't technically a part of the market, but is on the edge of the market in Ferry Street. The council is both developer and approver of it, and they want, uh, of a multi-storey building. They want 200 metres. The open panel hearing from last year is recommended to the planning minister for a 100 metre height around the market because traditionally we've had a low rise entry into the market, which is quite a reprieve from the intensity of the growing high rises in the CBD. So you can see the whole fabric of the market, and that's just some of it actually, Jake. Um, you can see the whole fabric and purpose of the market is being changed. The council used words by respecting authenticity and heritage, while at the same time, not the rhetoric doesn't mean uh, is really one thing, mm. but the plan is to destroy the market as we know it. Yeah. Well, sometimes I, I hearing about the street development, I sometimes basically you know describe. It basically appears to be like an attempt um, to basically turn um, the Queen Victoria markets into basically, well, probably not exactly, just another version of the Melbourne Central Shopping Centre, though I presume it's not going to yeah, have the same. Yeah, shopping mall. Yes, and that strategy is based on that kind of retail strategy. The reality is market retailing is a very particular thing. It's not, not a sheep. It, it's not the same as a shopping centre or a mall. People, management doesn't quite understand the particularity of market retailing. You ask the traders. The traders, you know, the market markets are thousands of years old. And traders, the traders in our market are often generational, as are the shoppers, actually. And we do have new shoppers. But people know, the traders know and the customers know what works and doesn't work. We don't want men in suits many of them who don't shop in the market, making decisions and shaping the future for our market because it's really development-driven. It's not about what's good for the market. This market is Melbourne's number one tourist attraction because it's the real deal. It reflects our city. People, tourists want to come where locals go. And once you start tampering with this and thinking you know better, you rip the heart and soul out of it and it stops being the vibrant, wonderful place of you. Mm, hear, hear. Yeah, so mm. what can you um, tell us about um, the campaign that you know is developing in opposition to this? Um, 
because obviously, from what I understand, you have a rally on today at 11.30am, and what can you tell us about that? Well, I, I hope your listeners are going to be there. Um, we need as many bodies on the ground to show their support as possible. We started um, a couple of years ago, actually. Can I give you a little bit of my background? Maybe that would give yeah, you sure, sure. Yeah, sure, sure. I was born and bred in that market. My father and family members were at stall holders from the mid-40s to the mid-70s hmm. in the last century. So the market for me is in my blood. I, um, I'm a school teacher, actually, um, by trade um, or profession. Um, I've shopped in the market all my life. My kids shop there, and now my grandchildren have a special relationship with it. It's a feeling when I shop there, it's a feeling of well-being. I know my traders. I love the interaction. I love the multicultural nature of it. I love the experiential feel of it. It's a tactile, noisy, bustling place, gritty place. Um, and I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that. So a group of us got together with some traders and said, look, we can see the writing on the wall here. We've got to do something about it. We came up with the idea of this Facebook page, social media, um, Friends of Queen Victoria Market. It's a community page. And it, I have to say from our small beginnings, we now have a reach of 40,000 people. That's a lot of people in Melbourne who care about the future of the market. Mm. So we post um, things on this Facebook page that tell it as, as, as it is. The traders feed into us what's happening, um, no spin, and we invite comment. We want to know what people feel. So um, that's the opposition, um, and it's not just it's not just the people that congregate on social media. It's a huge community, I must say. It's the people in the surrounding suburbs who come and shop at the market. Now, politically, this is going to, this is turning into a state issue because they're the marginal seats of Melbourne. And there's a lot of people who see this as a major issue and these people are votes. So, um, this is the way the opposition is going and, um, it's a strong voice and I don't know why our Lord Mayor is hell bent on not listening and doing his own thing. I suspect it's because of his mates, the developers. Hmm. Um, just um, what I just wanted interested in um, hearing about um, kind of the different support you've gotten from the for the campaign because I noticed that the National Union of Workers have been completely behind this campaign and playing a very key, appears what appears to be a very key supporting role. There are a number of players. If the the NUW have been absolutely fabulous. What we realised is. The market comprises of many independent small businesses. That's what markets are. Now, we needed to bring these people together, unite these people, and it's very difficult to do, and that's what the NUW have done. The majority of the traders and our members of the NUW, the NUW represent them in meetings um, so that they get a fair deal. And all of us, they've been game changers. They have been the most wonderful people. And um, they really listen and they represent honestly the needs of the traders. Then we have Phil Cleary, who actually stood for mayor on the Queen Victoria Market ticket. 
and he is the spokesperson for an organisation called STAG, which is the Storeholders Action Group. Now, he's been really vocal in representing the traders in a wider field politically and with management. And then you've got friends, who, and that's us, and we um, support, and we are the voice of the community. So um, we are, that's probably the landscape of the opposition, which is enormous. Yeah. Alright, um, just, um, we're getting a bit low on time now, but, um, any kind of like, you know, final comments about, you know, how people can support the campaign? Obviously, going to the rally is probably the most important thing at this point. Um, yes, today, look, right for the Lord Mayor at the City of Melbourne, right to, um, the Minister for Planning, Richard Wynne, talk among your friends, write to your local MP, you're an inner suburban, um, community radio, they're the, um, they're the ministers that matter in inner, in inner Melbourne. Talk to your friends, make sure people are aware of the, um, the issues and our concerns. Come to the market and shop. Join Friends of Queen Victoria Market. You don't have to be a friend. It's a community page. It's open to everyone. Mm. Just call Friends of Queen Victoria Market. You can Google it and get on. Um, you'll see a wonderful video of Sigrid Thornton, actor, um, urging people to come to the rally. Get involved. That's what I'm saying. Show, show as Sigrid said, we're mad as hell and we're not going to put up with it. Take it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alright, thank mm. you very much. Um, it was um, great having you um, here in Rad, and um, I'll probably actually see you at the rally today because I'm planning on being there. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Look forward to meeting you, and thank you for the time. Yeah, thank keep you. up the good work, Mary. Yeah, yeah. Good work. champion. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Alright, Mary Lou there from Friends of Queen Vic Markets, and uh, yeah, as mentioned, there's a rally today at 11.30 at Queen Vic Markets, and uh, yeah, head along to the uh, Facebook group if you're not already yeah. on there. And um, another thing that probably wasn't mentioned is there'll be a whole range of speakers and you'll get to hear Phil Clary. He's always quite a fiery, like a really good speaker. I mean, he spoke at the VU Cuts Forum um, that happened um, yesterday that I was at mm. and just made a probably electrifying speech on, you know, why the Western Bulldogs should, you know, come out and, you know, stand with Victoria University, especially since they are a sponsor. Um, so definitely, um, definitely going to be worth going to yes for that. Yeah, and uh, Mary Lou spoke about the uh, support of the National Union of Workers. I understand the National um, Secretary of the NUW is going to be there today as well. Mm. So yeah, it's an interesting sort of um, front, like the the sort of small business holders. Their interests are really more with the working class, but mm. you get the the 1% try and tell small business people that their interest is with big business. Mm. So it's really interesting to see the union there doing that sort of work because really with small market holders like that, they're, they're much more like, um, you know, it's it's really a working class thing. These people aren't like rich tycoons. They're holding small markets. They're selling a bit of stuff. Mm. So, yeah, and it's, it's like, um, it's like the, um, for a lot of people in... Queen Victoria Market could shop there, they're probably completely unaware. I mean, I imagine, like, you know, if they even went through with this proposed redevelopment, there'll be, like, lots of people who will be very upset that, yeah, you know, yeah. that this market that they, you know, they've shopped at for years and, you know, it's just been turned into just another 
generic shopping centre just mm. right before their eyes. It's it's the same way I felt when the Corkman pub got... Oh, that was terrible. It <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, was like a bar that me and my friends would just go to often, you know, have a drink. That was my local. Mm. Yeah, and mm. they, it's just gone overnight. Mm. Yeah, well, at least in this situation, there's a bit of forewarning, so there is a chance to mobilise yeah. against, against the plans. Mm. All right, um, we, again, we have probably like four minutes left before Beyond Zero Emissions. I would just like to actually, you know, have a bit of a discussion about this quick article. Um, this is an article you can read um, on Green Left Weekly because I'm not even have a chance um, to really, you know, talk in great detail about it. Um, but it's basically um, a kind of social science sort of um, statement and article written by Pip Henman on saying no to the new war drive. Um, it's the front cover article and basically you know, arguing that, you know, um, Dong Shomp's threat to unleash a new nuclear war should not be dismissed as, like, you know, the ravings of an unhinged individual. Um, but he's also prepared, you know, he may be just that, but he's also prepared to show, start a new war and rack it up um, new old ones. And, of course, you know, we, um, you know, there was the bombing of Afghanistan, you know, there's the bomb on Syria, which was actually, apparently, it's been speculated that that bomb on Syria was just basically a way of telling you know, North Korea that, you know, look at what we can do because they apparently pre-warned Russia that they would be a bomb and so no, you know, Russian, you know, troops or um, uh, civilian people were killed as a result. Um, but, yeah, one of the... Um, but, what, um, but what Pip kind of argues here is that, you know, people need to start mobilising. We need to actually start, you know, building kind of like an anti-war coalition, you know, that stands up against the kind of militarism of the United States. And one of the most important points is, you know, we need, you know, to break away from the US-Australian alliance. Um, because, you know, whenever US-United uh, States goes on a war drive or goes to war, you know, Australia is always completely compliant and submissive to whatever the United States is doing. And that needs to be particularly a, a demand of the anti-war movement's point. We need to break the US-Australian alliance, you know, and people need to start organising and maybe, you know, start to tap into, you know, some of the networks um, that, you know, the anti, um, the stop the war in Iraq movement, um, and, you know, and see what we can do from there. Yeah. 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 Mm. There's uh, also just a quick little update. There's been reports coming out of uh, Kurdistan and Kobani of... Uh, a bunch of airstrikes by the Turkish military over the last couple of days. So I'll see if I can post an update to the Green Left Radio Facebook group about that. But um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty scary stuff. But uh, yeah, the Kurds are kind of fighting back and de- defending themselves mm. against the Turkish army as best as they can. It sounds like there are a lot of our peoples going on in that area. Things are happening quite quickly at the moment. Mm. Mm. Um, so well, we have one minute left. What we can just uh, go thank all, uh, thank all our guests um, for being yes. on the program. Lisbeth Latham about the French presidential election, Stuart Monkson about Venezuela, and yes. of course Mary Lou uh, about Friends of que- Queen Vic Markets. So. Yeah, and for um, people who read um, Green Left Weekly, um, Lisbeth Latham for next week's issue, as far as I know, has a long article on the French elections oh, coming cool. up, which was probably... Um, but a lot of what she talked about the interview will be in much more formalistic kind of detail. 
and um, so yeah, stay, stay tuned for for that. In if you especially if you're a subscriber to Green Left Weekly, indeed. And um, also, you can also pick up the latest Green Left Weekly today. Actually, if you um, drop by Flinders Street um, from four to six pm um, station, and there's also the Coburg Farmers Market um, from ten to twelve pm tomorrow, and um, Coburg Mall. All right. Thank, All right. um, thank you, listeners. Cheers. And, um, stay tuned for next week, yeah. which will be a special kind of May Day program of Green Left Weekly Radio. All right. Goodbye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned in to 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?